0: you're awake 16 hours a day. Out of that 16 hours, how many hours are you truly practicing distraction? If you're practicing distraction for 12, 18 out of that 16 hours, seven days a week, then you're going to become really, really good at it, right? So if you want to be good at something, you have to practice it. And people are masters at practicing distraction.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is, where awareness goes, energy flows. Our guest today, Don DePonday, shared that quote with me. He's a Hindu priest and entrepreneur who studied as a monk for 10 years. He now teaches people around the world how to live a life of purpose and joy and how to use the principles of discipline, focus, and energy management to live a better life. He has also worked with leaders from companies like Nike, Travago, and his TEDx talk, Unwavering Focus, has been viewed nearly 3 million times. Donda Pandey, welcome. I'm uh, very excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today.
0: Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Honored to be here.
1: Yes, and you know, I really I've had the privilege of of learning from you and uh, hearing you speak several times, and each time uh, I get something more out of it. So, looking forward to the same here. Thank you.
0: The quote that you shared is a quote by my guru, and something that you know I hold very dear to me. You know, I learned that from him when I lived with him in the monastery, where awareness goes and energy flows, and it encapsulates a lot of what. I teach, you know, about focus and managing energy.
1: Well, we're going to get into both of those topics. But before we do that, we, we, we you've had a very interesting journey. Uh, you graduated from university with an electrical engineering degree, decided to become a monk after graduation. How did you make that decision and what did, what did that transition look like?
0: Yeah, I wanted to become a monk since I was about four or five years old. And, uh, you know, ever since then, it was really a quest to try and find a teacher that could teach me, I could train with. And uh, it wasn't until I met my guru that I actually found someone that I wanted to dedicate my life to and and study fully with. So even though I wanted to be a monk since I was four or five, I never found the right place I could go to. So when I met him, I realized that he was my teacher and he was the one I wanted to study with. So I gave up everything and joined his monastery. It was a Hindu monastery, traditional Hindu monastery, cloistered monastery that, was, uh, that is on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And it's been there for almost 50 years now.
1: Wow. So I'm curious, what was a typical day like when you were studying in a monastery? Yeah, let would say, you know,
0: uh, obviously we led very disciplined lives. Uh, just give you a quick rundown of the day the, when I was there, the monks the day would start at 5.30 in the morning with a traditional Hindu ritual ceremony in the temple that went on for half an hour. The monks would meditate for an hour after that, would exercise a little bit. The monks would then divide it into five groups. And one group of monks would work on the publication of books and digital products that we had in terms of digital books, content online, web podcasts. One group of monks would take care of the finance, another group of monks would take care of the land and buildings. So the monks were divided into those groups. Everybody went into their various groups, worked. We, you know, obviously took a break for lunch. Uh, we spent a little time cleaning the monastery because there were no mums, no dads at home. We were the moms and dads, so we had to clean. <laughs> and kept our place tidy. And uh, you know, we worked in the afternoons and the evenings, we kinda of relaxed. And you know, usually went to bed around nine o'clock at night and uh, most monks were up around 4.30, I would say, in the morning, 4, 4.30 in the morning.
1: And, and I know you've talked about having to give up everything when you became a monk. What what was the most difficult thing uh, that you had to give up during your study?
0: The most difficult thing to give up was probably my family because I'm pretty close to them. And I've lived with them my whole life. And and you know when I joined the monastery, I only spoke to them maybe twice a year on the phone at the most, so not being able to see them year after year, not speak to them, not know what's going on, that was extremely difficult, you know, in terms of giving up. Uh, the other things, yeah, I mean, they were difficult as well, but not as much as the people that you love and knowing that, you know, you potentially would never see your mother again, or your dad.
1: And so how long were you in the monastery? 10 years. Yeah, so it's 10
0: years. In the monastery, of vows lasted two years, and every two years we could renew them. And usually, monks take vows in at least in our tradition for two-year cycles until about ten to fourteen years, and then you take lifetime vows. So I decided not to renew my vows up to ten years, and and I left. I left Hawaii and I uh, moved to the mainland U.S. I grew up in Australia as so you had shared, and I decided not to go back to Australia, so I decided to move to the mainland U.S. and um, after about a year or so of traveling, I made my way to New York City and made that my home.
1: So a monk in New York City. We were joking about the background noise and ambulances right. and stuff. It is a, it's not the typical place of, of serenity. So at this point, you transitioned into teaching and coaching others and really settled on this message of focus, concentration, and purpose in the place maybe intentionally or not intentionally where, where these probably exist the least. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that transition and your practice and kind of what it is that you focus on with individuals and companies.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I am no longer a monk anymore. I am a Hindu priest. And in the Hindu faith, uh, monks and priests, the two paths, basically, you would say that's the path of the monastic and the path of the householder. And the monastic community within Hinduism lead a celibate life and monks live in cloisters with each other all by themselves. And then when you follow the householder path, uh, the householder path is where you can get married, have family, work, and money. And priests, Hindu priests fall under that category. So I'm no longer a monk now, even though a lot of people quite often still refer to me as a monk. I, I'm, not, I'm a priest. And so I'm married. I lived with my wife and daughter in New York City. And you know when I left the monastery obviously I needed to earn an income to survive and uh, one of the things you know I wanted to do was to also share what I had learned from my teacher and so I, I do that now I I work primarily with entrepreneurs around the world and a couple of athletes as well and I I share basically teachings primarily around the topic of understanding the mind better learning to develop that focus, learning to develop that willpower, getting clarity on your vision for your life, your purpose in life, and also really learning to manage your energy. It's something that a lot of people don't really talk about. And and for me, I find that we have a finite amount of energy. How do we learn to manage that, harness that energy, and channel it to what we want in life or what we want to manifest in life? And I found New York City to be great because... One of the things that, you know, Rob, I, when I lived in the monastery was that people would come there and monks would share things and teachings. And quite often, you know, I would hear people say, well, it's so easy for you to practice all of these things that you're teaching. You live in a cloistered monastery in Hawaii. How hard is it to do <coughs> then? Right. And I couldn't argue with that statement. I go like, yeah, you're right. You know, it's not hard. And they would say, you don't know what it's like to live in New York. You don't know what it's like to live in London or Beijing and have a business or have a family and this and that. And so now I live in New York City, uh, which is noisy and busy and it's New York City. I have my own business. I have a family and, and I have countless opportunities to put all these tools into practice
1: yeah and you, you know you you gave a great TEDx talk, and one of the things you mentioned in there is you suggested the idea that people are actually never taught how to concentrate. and I, And I've heard you say, you know we get good at what we practice and we're we're yeah. practicing distraction. So is this something we're just expected to know? I mean, how do you teach people to concentrate?
0: Well, I think it's something, like you said, it's like something that people are expected to know, you know when when most people are growing up, they're told to concentrate. Kids are told by their teachers and their parents, hey, focus, you know, concentrate on your homework, concentrate on eating your food or concentrate on, on what you're doing. And they're told to do it, but they're never taught how to. So, people assume that people naturally know how to concentrate, but they don't. It's a skill that needs to be learned and that needs to be practiced if you want to be good at it. And we just assume people know how to do it. And I mean, it's so easy to look around, you know, when when I'm out of my apartment, I'm around and I see parents with kids and... It's amazing how many times I hear parents say to the kids, say, can you just focus for a second? They tell the kids to do that, but they don't teach them how to. And nor do they help them to practice it once they teach them how to do
1: it. So what's the secret?
0: It comes down to understanding the mind, right? It comes down to understanding the mind, how the mind works, and then learning to be able to focus that mind. And that really is what it is, you know. And in the TEDx talk, I go into it quite a bit. Obviously, that's an 18-minute talk, and I have an online course on that conversation on the whole topic as well. And one thing you know, that I try to avoid is uh, to give people the quick tidbit that <laughs> they can get, right? Because everybody is fishing for that, right? Everyone Tell me a how hack? to do
1: What's the focus hack? Yeah.
0: And I'm just not going down that road because people are lazy and they don't want to do the hard work.
1: <laughs> no, it that is the, true. The honest truth, you know? But the framework that you shared, which I'd love you to walk through, because I, I, for me, that it really crystallized the problem, maybe not the solution. But can you talk about the distinction between awareness and the mind, and and how they relate to each other, but they're different?
0: Yeah, for sure. So, in the way I was taught, is that we we look at the mind and awareness as two completely different things. The mind doesn't move, but it's rather your awareness that moves within the mind. So, quite often you hear people say. Things like, I have a monkey mind, right? My mind's are all over the place. And technically, that's a false statement. Your mind doesn't move. Your mind doesn't travel. But it's your awareness that's moving within the mind. And you can take your awareness to a happy area of the mind, a sad area of the mind. You can hold your awareness on one person for an extended period of time. You can hold your awareness on one thing for an extended period of time. But the key is to understand the separation between awareness and the mind. And that's really what you want to know, and, and once you grasp this, to me, it's, it's life-changing. It's a game-changer. Intellectually understanding it is one thing, but then actually experiencing it and then being able to control where your awareness goes in your mind. That's that's where the magic is.
1: I wonder, I and mean, we could experiment on this, the exercise that you've done in the classroom, I mean, could you do it? Would it work now to do with people in terms of actually showing them a little bit of what that would look like?
0: Uh, I'd rather for them to decide either go listen to the TEDx talk, okay. you know, than right. to do it on the on this. It's okay. like, yeah, I have people like, like, Oh, let's do a guided meditation on the podcast. I'm like, No, people <laughs> are driving when they're listening to the podcast, they're going for a walk, they're in the
1: gym. I was thinking about that. I'm not trying to get anyone uh, hurt. I know. And, and not only that, it's just like, how many people do you know, sit
0: down on their couch, maybe with a drink in their hand? listening to a podcast without doing anything else.
1: Not a lot. Yeah, probably zero. <laughs> this is an interesting discussion in itself. So yeah. the way that people consume a lot of podcasts is when they're running, biking, in the car, otherwise, like, is that something you recommend? Or is that, is that focusing? Or is that, is that, are they really only able to give their attention to one of those things at a time?
0: Well, I think depending... Well, two questions here in, in that statement. One is, what is the podcast, right? If the podcast is the comedy show where someone is telling jokes and entertaining you, it's totally fine, right? Because it's not something that you really have to process so much. If it's an educational podcast that's talking about you know, business management or focus or finance or strategy, then your mind has to engage with that. And if your mind has to engage with that, how can you engage with that and drive at the same time? Right. So then your your awareness is switching between one thing and the other so rapidly, it gives you a sense that you're doing both at the same time, which is multitasking, which ultimately is teaching you how to be distracted. You know, when I want to listen to something that's educational, I sit down and I give it my undivided attention so I can truly consume and get value from it.
1: You talk to us about um, practicing distraction because I, I, I've loved hearing you talk about that, how, we're, how we're, we're learning to master it.
0: Yeah, because that's what people do all day, right? We have to define distraction first. And, you know, distraction is basically allowing your awareness to get pulled from one thing to another by an external source. And that external source could be a person or it could be something outside of you, a noise, a beep on your cell phone, a notification on your computer. Every time something goes bing or ding, your awareness gets dragged to it. And if you allow that to happen, then you allow yourself to get distracted. And if that's what you're practicing all day, then that's what you're becoming really good at. You know, if I wanted to play in the US Open or in Wimbledon, I'd have to practice hours a day to be able to get into the competition and possibly even get to the final. Right. And the more I practice, the better I get. And, you know, when I ask, people in my workshops, and I say, you know, hey, if I want to play for the San Francisco 49ers, if I want to play in Wimbledon against Nadal, how many hours a day do you recommend I practice tennis? People go like, oh, six, seven hours a day, seven days a week. You are know, like, that's a lot of practice. I go like, okay, I'll do that. After six months, will I play in Wimbledon? Everyone says no. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm practicing six, seven hours a day, seven days a week at tennis, and I still can't be good enough after six months, to be at that level. So imagine, you know, how much I would need to practice to be really, really good at tennis. But if you look at how much people practice uh, distraction, you know, they don't practice like seven hours a day. You know, we're we're 24 hours in a day. Most people, if they're lucky, sleep seven to eight hours, you know, a day. And so you're awake 16 hours a day. Out of that 16 hours, how many hours are you truly practicing distraction? If you're practicing distraction for 12, to eighteen out of that 16 hours, 7 days a week, then you're going to become really, really good at it. Right? So if you want to be good at something, you have to practice it. And people are masters at practicing distraction.
1: Do you have recommendations for people about not having any of these notifications on their cell phone? I, I mean, I have some friends, and they've got you know, I see it's every every news item, every basket that's scored, and then they've got the watch, and the thing is just it's going off all day, and I I don't know that people know what this costs them because if you ask them what was most important to them, I promise they wouldn't say that news or that score or otherwise. But I don't I don't know that they understand what it's actually costing them in terms of losing focus and and or awareness on what it is they want most they're just used to it the thing beeps it goes off the score the this that and it just it seems that it's probably both unhealthy and unproductive
0: totally unhealthy unproductive how much time is wasted how much energy is wasted every time you have to switch from one task to another and then switch back again you got to get your mind refocused into what it was doing previously, get back to the point of where it was before it left it. I mean, it's just an ultimate time waste. the people do this all the time. And and like you said, they're just unaware that this is costing them time, energy, and money. So much money is spent and wasted, especially in companies where most companies, if not all companies, don't teach the employees how to concentrate. You teach them everything else, but they don't teach them how to concentrate. And tell me one company that doesn't want to be more efficient and more productive.
1: Yeah. So there's some interesting things as you say this about getting into business. So one of the things I've been fascinated by is that the whole kind of open office space movement has has been debunked recently because apparently the goal is to create all this communication and 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 connectivity, but people are so distracted by other people all day long that, that now they're wearing noise cancelling headphones and and you know trying to yeah. to get away from each other. so in in the email slack world, how, how do how do managers or leaders or people need to communicate? I, I know you know Warren Warren and who's a mentor of mine, and I mentioned this recently, but you know, he says, I have an open door policy, but I'm not always available. <laughs> I love that.
0: And my guru was the same way too in this monastery, right? He had an office and he had an open door policy. When his door was open, you could come in anytime. Right. When his door was closed, you couldn't interrupt him. And that's the way to be, right? And I think with the open office plan, it's that, well, the biggest problem here is that nobody's been, taught how to concentrate. Nobody's taught about the value of concentration and what it actually brings to an individual, the value it brings to an individual, the value it brings to a company. So this sense of you know, like having Slack messagings and all these different messages and phones ringing, people texting each other all the time without any policy set in place is, is just terrible because it's just such a waste of money, waste of money, waste of time, waste of energy. If I ran a company with 30 or 100 people or 500 people in it, I would absolutely not allow
1: that at all. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best in class towing capacity, available 33 inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. How would you communicate that? So, Pretend you're coaching a leader who has a large team. How would you encourage them to set boundaries around what? Immediacy and availability and urgency meant because I think that everyone thinks that everything is is urgent these days, or people should be available. You know, part of the the problem with I think where Gen Z struggles with this is they're used to an immediate answer, right? So when someone doesn't answer immediately, oh, what's wrong? Are you mad at me? I mean, so yeah. how would you coach a leader on how to you know establish with their this with their team and how to communicate the and and how important it was that people have this space to concentrate?
0: Well, I would, you know, I think the first thing, like you said, you know, is to convey to them, what's the cost? Every, I mean, you know, I work with entrepreneurs, right? Those are the, the people that I work with
1: and- They're not very focused. So that's a good, you, it's a good base to start with.
0: Right, it's interesting because they're focused in certain areas, right?
1: They're distractible, right? They're focused, but they're distractible.
0: They're distractible. And I met some entrepreneurs that are hyper-focused, And they're really, really focused on what they do. But I would say, you know, the first thing is to really make the case to them. And by making the case saying, you know, here's the cost to your company in terms of time, efficiency, productivity, energy, and also dollar cost. You know, you have a team of 20 people or 50 people that are working for you. And if they come to work for eight hours a day, how many of those eight hours are they actually doing things? And how, well, how much time is actually spent doing things they don't need to be doing or they're distracted with? And you know, so many companies say to their teams, you know, like, hey, guys, we've got this project that's due and in, in two weeks or in a month, it's super big, this account, we want to close it, we want to do it really well. We need everyone to focus. Now, you tell your teams to focus, but you don't teach them how to focus. So I think the first person that really needs to be one over one over is the leader, right? The leader needs to be sold the fact that distraction is costly to him or her. And when they can understand that and grasp that concept, then the next step is teaching the leader how to concentrate. Because there's no point teaching the team if the leader is distracted. Teaching the leader how to concentrate, teaching the leader how to practice concentration, and then training the team how to concentrate and, and how to practice it so they can become more efficient. And, and not only more efficient, but just more, a much more rewarding life. We work so hard to earn money so that we can use the money to have the kind of life that we want. You know, I, I know an entrepreneur who sold his business, did really well, made lots of money, went on a vacation, was on a boat with his family going somewhere. And then he shared it with me yeah, and the whole time on the boat, I was on the phone. Yeah. And I go like, what's the point then of working so hard to earn the money so you can be on a boat in a nice tropical place and then not be there?
1: Is part of the problem, though, that people don't... I feel like we've lost the ability to differentiate between urgent and important. Yeah, for sure.
0: And for people, everything is urgent, right? And I don't think anything is urgent at all. I think the only people who have, not only, but one of the few people that have urgent jobs are like the people that answer the 911 calls. Yeah, Yeah, answer that call. But everybody else, no. And I have, you know, I work with a bunch of different freelancers or developers that are, you know, like building my app and this and that. Sometimes I'll get a message, you're like, we need this right away. And I'm like, why? Why do you need it right away? And I can't get this to you right away and get it to you at this time or tomorrow. Right, no
1: no one is gonna die.
0: No one's gonna die. And if everything is urgent, then life just gets chaotic. Then you're constantly then switching from one task to another because in a space of one hour if you have five things that come into you, all of them have been labelled urgent, then what are you gonna do? There's only one of you. So for me, I think it's you know, getting the real clarity of what's important. And I think that also comes down to leadership, right? If leaders don't define to their teams what's truly important and what truly is a priority, then the people on the team end up being getting anxiety and stress because they think everything's urgent and it's physically impossible to do all
1: those tasks. Well, and people need to know how to sit with stuff, right? I think that, you know, a lot of things I've been reading and some of the stuff on distraction and technology these days is that, you know, as soon as you have the discomfort or you have the ambiguity, you ask a question, you look up something, like, we're losing the ability to sit with ourselves and think and process, which is, I think, where a lot of learning happens. What is sitting with yourself? (laughs) Right. Right. I think
0: people don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sit by themselves without picking up a phone or doing something, you know, reading a book, writing in a journal.
1: Waiting in line.
0: Waiting in line. Just be by yourself. Because if they have to be by themselves, the first thing they encounter is their subconscious mind. And that's not a pretty place to look into. So rather distract yourself and keep your awareness out in the conscious mind so you don't have to be distracted by what's inside of you.
1: Well, we're going to get into that in, in a minute, but the, there's just these huge disconnects going on, right? Because you have people, and maybe you can explain this to me. I think you're the right person for the job. But I, I read something last week that 20-something percent of millennials say they have no friends. And there is all this online connectivity, yet people are saying in record numbers that they are lonelier than they have ever been. And there's just some missing part of that <laughs> equation. And, and it maybe, as you said, is it that they don't understand what lonely is or they just don't know how to be alone or that being with themselves is lonely? And it's confusing.
0: I think there's multiple issues here, right? One is that people don't, aren't taught how to communicate anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I can send someone three sentences in a text message that shares in detail an expression of gratitude for something they did. It's maybe 40 words or something in in a nice text message that I spell out how much I appreciate them and what they did. And I get back a namaste emoji. (laughs) And I'm like, what the, you know? (laughs) And this is how people communicate this line today, you know, with an emoji, with an LOL or this or that. And then, yeah. Yeah. Everything is quick, so then why would, why would you not have any friends? Because you don't know how to communicate, first of all. Second is you can't even concentrate long enough to even have a conversation with another person. You know how many times it, I, it was like a week ago, uh, I was upstate in New York with my wife visiting uh, one of her friends and, and the lady who, was, who we were visiting, she asked me a question. She asked me a question. Four words into my answer, she turned around and started looking at her phone. Uh, and I stopped talking and she didn't even realize.
1: Yeah, I, I, people talk about it. Social networking is, is making us antisocial. Well, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Adnapani. And we're going to talk a little more about these uh, three states of minds, which we started to get into here. You can have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. DoorDash is a regular go-to in our household. We have a group of hungry teenagers who all want to eat something different. My kids use DoorDash. My wife and I also use it when we want a good meal, but don't have the time to cook. Some of our favorite restaurants now have delivery available for the first time. In fact, there are over 3,400 restaurants in 3,300 cities now on DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code ELEVATE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code ELEVATE. Don't forget, that's promo code ELEVATE for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. All right, and we're back. So we started to get into this a little bit more, but I'd love for you to, to sort of explain this to everyone because this was another framework that was really helpful to me. But you know, you've talked about the three states of mind, the the superconscious, the subconscious, and the conscious. Can you talk about the distinctions between those states?
0: Yeah, the conscious mind, which you could say in a simplified way, is your external mind. It's tied to your five senses. Uh, it's your Waking state, you're eating, interaction, walking, talking, it's the external mind. The subconscious, you could say, is your hard drive. Everything you've ever experienced in your life is stored in your subconscious, whether you remember it or you don't remember it. And your superconscious, you could say, is your spiritual, intuitive, creative area of the mind. And most people function in their conscious mind. They're externally Function right? So when when you're on the phone, when you're talking to someone, you're walking, you're driving, you're in the conscious area of the mind. And when you meditate, for example, the first thing you encounter is your subconscious mind. Because when you meditate, you're starting to close your senses down, right? You close your eyes, you still your physical body by sitting down quietly, trying not to move. So then your body is, so to speak, not pulling your awareness out. Your eyes are closed, you're regulating your breath. And now you go from the conscious mind into the subconscious, and then you start to see what's in the subconscious. And that's why you know, most people are always picking up their phone or doing something, because they're afraid to see what's in the subconscious mind. Or if they see what's in the subconscious mind, they don't like it. And that just makes them leave there and go out.
1: Right. So is it, is it in those moments they're going to negative thoughts? They're going to self-doubt? Is it, what what where are they typically going with that?
0: Well, just look at the subconscious as a, as a basement. And if you're 30 years old, you have 30 years of baggage stored in the basement. Yeah. So if you have nothing to do and you open that basement door, you're just going to see what's piled in the basement. And some of the bigger items might be laying in front, or the most recent bigger items could be laying in front. And then when you see that, you go like, oh... I don't want to see that. That was the argument I had with so-and-so, which I never resolved, you yeah. know, and it's still in the front of my mind, oh, this happened to me, and I just pretend it never happened, so I don't want to talk about it. And that's why people constantly distract themselves, it's, you know, because going within, and you, you, you mentioned just now, you know, have sitting with yourself. When you sit with yourself, that's what you're going to experience, if your subconscious. And people don't sit with themselves, right? They put a headphones on. They listen to music. They Even when they're meditating, they have music on. or Something, they're journaling, they're reading a book, they're listening to a podcast. People are always doing something. They never truly spend, give themselves their undivided attention.
1: So is, is this... Again, this having no friends number was just fascinating for me, given you know, how much the terms friends are used online and connections and all this stuff. Is it, is it that they really have no friends or that they're uncomfortable with themselves? I'm curious as to your thought on that. Maybe not an answer, but I'm still, yeah. I'm still struggling with this statistic yeah. <laughs> for the most connected generation in, in history to, yeah. to feel that they have no friends.
0: I think in a lot of cases, it's true. I think people don't have friends. Because friendships are cultivated through spending time with someone, right? right? I remember when I was growing up in my early years, I grew up in Malaysia, and I would go to school. I you know, obviously, we had no cell phones then. I would spend time with my friends in class and then doing recess and stuff. We'd hang out, we'd talk, and we'd just have conversations because it's nothing else to do. So we have conversations or we'd play. And then even in the afternoons, you know, we'd come home from school around one in the afternoon. Sometimes I'd call up my best friend, we'd talk on the phone for half an hour, chat about whatever movies or this or that or sports, yeah. you know.
1: Not Namaste emojis.
0: No Namaste emojis. <laughs> it was all full conversations, right? Yeah. We would have reactions, we would have emotions expressed. And, and that's how friendships were built. And now people don't have time for each other. I can't tell you, Robert, I don't call many people or not many people call me is how I have set up my life, (laughs) you know. But the friends that I do that call me, I can't tell you. Actually, it's impossible for me to tell you how many of them do not give me their undivided attention. All of them, even though they've heard me say this a thousand times, are always doing something when I'm speaking with them. They're driving a car they're going for a walk, they're cleaning their house. I'm the only person that sits down doing absolutely nothing else and gives them my undivided attention. Yeah. Because I value their friendship.
1: What I'm hearing you say is this is costing people. It's doing the exact opposite of what they want, but they're not able to get themselves out of this death spiral.
0: No, and, and you know, some of those friends I stop talking with anymore because then they're like, you know, yeah, it's just not worth my time. If you can't put aside 10 minutes or half an hour to give me your undivided attention so we can have a conversation, just you and I, right? If our friendship is valuable, then what's the point? I don't want to call you while you're driving. This is not entertaining for me.
1: Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, well, I, this is a perfect segue. So one of the most impactful things, and you alluded to this before that about four or five years ago that I heard you say, and it's, it went on to become a big part of my book that's coming up, uh, elevate and the concept of emotional capacity, but was this, concept of energy vampires and that the people in your life, they give you energy, you take away. And And I think when people talk about like a lot of these relationships are friends and family that are just people walk into it and they feel terrible and they walk into it and all this obligation. And, you know, one of the things you say was about that there doesn't have to be this blow up or this breakup, but how to, how to start, you know, moving away from that. So I'd love if you could kind of explain the energy vampire concept you know the permanent versus temporary and then what people should do there and for me it's actually not only been the negative it's been the neutral ones it's been the ones where like you know kind of like we're saying like i like this person but like you know i walk away from some time with them and you know you have dinner once a year and you're like eh. <laughs> and so why is this how i want to spend my time i don't the great person or whatever but i this was hugely impactful for me it has probably been one of the biggest changes I've made in my life the last couple three years so I'd love to really have you unpack this for people listening so that they could get that same lesson
0: yeah um, I'm glad it, it, it's helped you a lot you know I, I think you're right you know it's the neutral people also that quite often say that you know let's catch up and I'm yeah. like for what <laughs> you know I had somebody message me recently someone I knew from the past I haven't spoken to in years and said let's catch up and I'm like for what why? What is there to catch up on? This is absolutely nothing to catch up on. I haven't spoken to you in years, in over ten years. And this is really nothing to catch up on. Obviously, if I was important in your life, or like you were important to me, we would have stayed in touch. And I think it's just a—it's a habit thinking for people, right? It's because that's what people say. Let's catch up. Let's get together. Yeah. And people say these things without actually thinking about them
1: and there's no need. I'll call you. It's like, why? Yeah. <laughs> Don't call me. So talk about, yeah, I mean, talk about the concept of, of energy yeah. management. And then because I think the, the directness by which how you explained to me and how you answered these things in these discussions was, again, for a former monk, I think was uh, the shock value of it's great, but I it, like walk people through this because I, people are terrible at this, particularly with family. They, they go back and get themselves dragged down and dragged down again. So yeah. And they say, well, they're family, but it's a choice. So I'd lo- like, what is an energy vampire?
0: Yeah, so I would say, an energy vampire is someone who is not uplifting, right? And in a simple way, you could say is that you know, if you were chatting with someone for ten minutes, or twenty minutes, and you walked away, how do you feel? Right? Do you feel uplifted? Do you not feel uplifted? If you don't feel uplifted, then potentially that person could be an energy vampire. Not necessarily, but you know, if obviously they're having a bad day, and you know, they might be feeling down, and then you talk to them and you don't feel great afterwards, then that's understandable. We all have crappy days. But, but if this is persistently happening to you with that one person year after year, then you could potentially classify them as someone who's inherently an energy vampire who's been this way for decades. And I think learning to identify that is crucial, right? But, you know, the energy of empire is one topic, right? But I think stepping back, even by the Robert, it's like all of this is not helpful. If at the end of the day, you don't even know where you're going in life. Right. Right. And most people don't have the clarity of what they want in life, who they want to spend time with. So I, I somehow sometimes feel like, you know, these tools are just like little things that don't really make a difference because at the end of the day, people just don't really know where they want to go or what they want in their life. And so then how can you make a smaller micro decision if this person is the right person for you or not? Right. And I think that's why people struggle with family members. And you talk about people that go back to the same situation again with a family member, right? Who might be toxic, who might be an energy vampire. Why do they do that? I mean, obviously, this is not one reason. It could be guilt. It could be a bunch of other reasons. But a lot of times because it's driven by the unclarity that they have. I have a family member, a relative that I haven't spoken to, I don't know, 15 years to 17 years now. I'm really clear what I want in my life and where I want to go. So I know she doesn't play a role in it. Yeah, She can if she changes her ways, but if she doesn't, she doesn't play a role in it. So for me, there's no impetus to go back to that relationship, to it, right? But for most people, when you say they keep going back into it, why do they go back into it? It's because they have no idea what they want. If they clear what they want, then it's so much easier to make that decision that this person is not uplifting. I don't want to spend time with them.
1: But if they don't see that that's blocking them from getting somewhere, then they want to be. But they don't know where they want to be, right? Right. Then they don't understand the, the cost.
0: Exactly. Yeah. There is no cost, right? Because if you don't have somewhere to be, or a goal to that you want to get to, then there's no cost. And then the cost at that point is if I let go of this family member who's an energy vampire, then I don't have that family vampire in my life. I don't have that family member in my life. And then what do I have? I have nothing. So let me keep the family energy vampire. So I have something rather than not have anything. Because there's no other pursuit in life. There's
1: nothing else to focus on. But let's pretend that people know what they want, or they're going to work on it and figure out what they want. Okay. (laughs) Can you explain how, again, because it's not a blow up, it's not a burner bridge, Can you and you've given some practical examples of how you kind of move away from an energy vampire?
0: Yeah, so I would say, you know, once you've identified someone as an energy vampire, one of the first things to do is to, especially if it's a family member, then you really want to be clear. The first step is making that decision you know, how, what, what is the damage being done, right? If the damage is being done, it's pretty serious. Like so, someone's physically abusing you or verbally abusing you or emotionally abusing you all the time. And you go like, look, I don't want this anymore in my life. Then the first step is to pull yourself away. One beautiful phrase that my guru coined was being affectionately detached. So you can be kind to an energy vampire that's, you know, not as intense. You can be kind, loving, and gentle, but you do not engage uh, with the person. So... You you don't make appointments to go have dinner with them. You don't get make appointments to go have lunch with them, to catch up with them. You just don't engage with them, period. And if they confront you and ask you, then you tell them, you know, they're not uplifting to you. Obviously not in just those two words. <laughs> but you, you want to be clear to them and, and tell them that They're not an uplifting presence and they're welcome back in your life. And and this is not a shunning, right? You're not shunning someone and saying to them that you never talk to them again. But it's more you're saying to them, you're welcome back in my life but you need to play by these rules. Mm -hmm. And the rules are that you need to be an uplifting person or at least at the bare minimum be a neutral person. And if you can't be either one of those, then we can't hang out.
1: Yeah, and and a lot of it too. I've heard you say is you know you don't have to. It's just that not engaging. You know you don't have to be in a negative place with them. You just you remove the perfunctory. Hey, how you doing? Want to catch up? Like these are the things we just say, even though we don't. Right.
0: Yeah, people say that all the time, and I'm really careful about saying those things, right? Because if I say to someone, "Let's catch up," (laughs) then I'm screwed. They want to catch up, I don't have time to catch up. Yeah. So I don't, I don't say that. I'll say things like have a nice day, you know, yeah. which I hope for them to have a nice day, but I don't want to catch up with them.
1: Was it you that said, was it they just don't ask people how they are if you don't want to know, or am I, am I misattributing that? No, no,
0: that's what I always say. Don't ask people how you are. And people ask that all the time. I grew up in Australia, right? When you see someone, they go like, hey, how's it going, mate? Yeah. And that's what Australians say all the time. How's it going, mate? And I don't say, how's it going, mate? And I don't ask people, how are you? Because I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> and not that I don't care. It's right. just that I need to be in a place where that I'm a priest, right? So if people start telling me their problems, then I got to listen. And people feel they need to tell me their problems all the time.
1: Yeah. And, and I think to bring this home for people, it is... By doing these things, right? By doing these perfunctory things and these things that you could do. And it's not that you don't have the time. You don't want to allocate the time, right? I think that's yeah. probably the it takes away from the other stuff that you really want to do and where you can make a, a bigger contribution, right? Because you yeah. you know that.
0: Yeah. And I only have a finite amount of energy each day. Some point tonight I'm exhausted and I'm gonna go to bed. Yeah. So I have so much energy in the day and I want to invest it. I want to invest it into the people that I love, the people that are investing back in me. I want to invest it into the things that I'm passionate about, that I'm driven about, my, my work, my, my vision, my mission. And once I've put all that energy into that, I don't have very much left to spare. And I think people have to realize that you have to earn someone else's energy. Yeah. And you have to work for it, it's, just, it's not something you just give out. And I think there's a lot of new age people out there that probably disagree with me. And that's fine. And that's why their lives are where they are. It's because they feel like, oh, yeah, just give energy to the whole world. And you're like, that's such a bullshit concept. (laughs) You know, nothing good comes out of that.
1: Right. That's a million little pieces, right?
0: It's a million little pieces. It doesn't work, right? The the, ability to focus the energy to people and things in a very thoughtful, clear way creates the greatest impact.
1: Well, think about a laser, right? The analogy of a exactly. laser. Focus light and it can cut glass. And if you break it all up, it can't do anything.
0: Or even the sun, right? Put a yeah. magnifying glass, you can burn a paper, right? Focus yeah. the sun's energy. Leave it just on its own. Yeah. Not the same impact. And I think you know, learning to manage energy that way, identifying what priorities are, I think that's a really big thing. Going back to the focus conversation earlier about the workplace and identifying what tasks are important, uh, what are top priorities. I think that needs to be applied towards each person and and how they plan to invest their energy. Who's important in your life? What's important in your life? And can you list list them in an order of priority?
1: So I'd love to hear a little bit what you're working on next. I know you have an app coming out. I mean, we've talked about a bunch of different concepts uh, at a high level. But as you've said, this is not the podcast uh, hack on focus and awareness. This takes yeah. real work and discipline. And I'm, I'm guessing this has to do with a lot of the, the tools you're coming out with, the app you're coming out with. So I'd love to hear about it.
0: Yeah, so thanks uh, for asking about that, Robert. So, yeah, I have an app that's launching in a couple of weeks, and um, the app basically is a platform where we can share courses on. So one of the first courses, actually, the first course on there is called Unwavering Focus, and it's a 10-chapter course on learning about what we talked previously about, awareness in the mind, learning how to develop willpower, learning how to develop concentration, and then using those three things, the knowledge of those three things, to actually handle and overcome fear, worry, anxiety, and stress. Because once you can learn to control awareness in the mind, it's not too difficult then to handle those four things of you know fear, worry, anxiety, and stress. And I think one of the best features of the app is a ritual section. So in the monastery, when I lived there, our whole day was filled with rituals. So it's about learning the tools and then applying the tools. right? So learning the tools is one thing, but unless you apply them in your daily life throughout the day, you're not going to make progress. So what I did was we created a, a ritual section where the day is divided into four sections, morning, afternoon, evening, and night. So in six hour segments. And in each of those quadrants, we created rituals for people to do. So like make the bed in the morning or give someone your undivided attention. And then every time you do one of those rituals, you rate yourself zero, one, two, or three. Zero, I didn't do it. Three, I did it really well. And then the app keeps track of how well you're developing your willpower, how well you're developing your concentration, and how well you're doing it, controlling where your awareness goes in your mind. And you know, after a week, after a month, after three months, you can see a lot of data on how well you're doing. And, and the idea is to help people cultivate consistent practice of the tools throughout the day, but also be able to track their progress.
1: Well, that's awesome. And we'll provide links. I'll get the links from you where they could find that. I assume it's in the, it's an Apple store.
0: Yep. In the Apple store and the Play store as well for Android. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we'll include uh, links to listeners on that. And I wanted to end with a final question here. And I, I always preface this by saying that it could be singular or repeated based on, based on my experience, but what's a mistake you've made personally or professionally that you've learned the most from? (laughs)
0: <laughs> that I've learned the most from. Well, that's the toughest part. Uh, I can list you a number. Of <laughs> about,
1: or cost you the most. It could be either way. You might not have learned from it, but it might. Yeah, have
0: it. I'm still learning from a lot of my mistakes. But uh, I would say, you know, one of my biggest challenges is learning to manage my energy. And even though this is something that I talk a lot about, how well you do it is all relative. And I think I I do it well, but I think in a lot of times I don't manage it so well. I, I feel like I'm quite driven and I put so much of my energy into my different passions and things that I want to do, that it comes at the cost where I don't take care of my health probably as well as I should be. And that's probably the biggest part that's been affected. You I know, mean, I do spend time with my family that I don't compromise at all. So my family gets my time. But I think my health could use more of my undivided attention. I mean, I'm not out there getting drunk, or, you know, but i have not getting enough sleep or probably exercise.
1: That goes in the least, least expected answers for me. But uh, I think everyone will appreciate that we are all a, a work in progress.
0: And I think that's a big thing to note, right? And I think it's an important thing for listeners your listeners or every listener to kind of keep in mind when, when they're hearing a podcast and if you're talking to a person, that don't assume that that person, when they're sharing something, that they are an expert at it, and unless they claim that and they practice that every moment of their life. I never claim any of those things. I just share with you what I've learned. I've never ever said that I practice them every single moment of my day. But I think that the big assumption is that when you hear someone share tools, you think that they practice it perfectly, and that's a very wrong assumption to place on a person.
1: They've identified the problem and the tool. It doesn't mean they've solved it.
0: Exactly. Right. Or that they practice it perfectly, flawlessly. Right? To assume that would is erroneous. That that burden of perfection should never be placed on that person. That's an unfair thing to do. And I get people placing that burden on me constantly thinking that, oh, your life must be just all in You know, it's like a little bento box and everything is just put away perfectly and then it's not. (laughs) You know, I I learned the tools and I constantly apply it to my life as my life changes. And with every change comes a new opportunity to apply the tools in a different way to adapt to those changes.
1: And that comes with trial and error. Great. Well, how can people get a hold of you and your work? They can't get a hold of me,
0: but they can definitely check out my stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah. Where do they find you? Maybe not specifically, but... but.
0: Yeah, they can go to dandapani.org. That's D-A-N-D-A-P-A-N-I iorg That's my website. And from there, they'll be able to find everything about me. My, I have tons of free content as well if you want to listen. The app that we're coming out has a whole library of free audio and video talks that you can download the app for free and listen to all that content for free and obviously their causes as well i'm most active on instagram so if you want to follow me on instagram i do post on there somewhat regularly but yeah that's where they can find out more about me
1: great well down to thanks so much for taking the time today as i said before Your work has really been inspirational for me and and a huge help on my journey to uh, focus and and improve. And I hope everyone uh, who's listening can really learn from your experience and and wisdom. And I appreciate you taking the time to share with us today.
0: No, thanks for having me on the Elevate podcast as well, Robert. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We will include links to Donda Ponde's website, his TEDx talk, and his upcoming app on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or any episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and get the same value from the content. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, it takes two seconds. You can just click on the library icon, Uh, Scroll down, find Elevate, and uh, scroll down and leave a review at the bottom. If you're listening in a browser or different app, uh, we've got a bunch of links to leave reviews under the podcast link at robertglaser.com. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.